Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm very excited to be, I'm not, I can't say I'm excited to be back in Washington, D.C., but I am excited to be home. It's nice to be home after a while. One of the best things about going away for a long time is you, you once again appreciate your actual home. So that's, that's good. And more about what I did on the summer vacation we can do uh, later on. Um, so earlier in the week, I had uh, my colleague Sarah Isger on, and um, I had fun talking to her, and then I was like, you know, the feminists are right. I don't have enough women on this podcast. And, um, and then I started thinking about who are the women in my life that I like a lot, that I'm really interested in hearing what they have to say, that I get along with, that I can do this podcast and have great fun with. And literally the top of my list was one Catherine Mangelsdorf. Um, this is not to say that this is any sort of like gender quota or anything like that. It's just like, this was my mental map. Um, Catherine Mangaward is the editor of Reason Magazine. We've known each other for a very long time. We've done some various conferences together. Uh, we have lots of mutual friends. She's wrong about many things where libertarians are wrong, and she's right about many things where libertarians are right. Uh, Catherine, welcome back to The Remnant. I am delighted to be back and delighted to start off on the note, the feminists are right. I thought you'd like that. I thought I'd just sort of chum the waters Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Although, let's start there. Um, before we get into the rank <laughs> punditry. Um, so uh, it seems to me that there is no way, there is no form of libertarianism, and there are many flavors of libertarianism. There are many rooms in the mansion of libertarianism, contrary to what a lot of libertarians will tell you. Um, but it seems to me, it's almost axiomatic. It's impossible to have a non-feminist libertarianism, at least one that's kind of written down. Um, am I wrong about that? Is there a form of libertarianism? I'm not, I don't mean culturally, right? I mean, sort of like as a matter of a, a dogma, a doctrine, a philosophy, a theory. I just, I, I never really thought about it in these terms, but it seems to me that libertarian feminism is kind of uh, redundant. No? I, I think that's right. My colleague, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, who is the founder of Feminists for Liberty, um, she's very much uh, of that view. She basically says, listen, if you just treat women as rights-bearing people worthy of respect and dignity, you get you get feminism, and that's also libertarianism. And I think that that's a very real insight. I do think that there is there is a a world in which you say, okay, here's here's another way of thinking about libertarianism. it's It's a world full of people making choices I wouldn't make. And so in that sense, I think libertarianism has space for intentionally non-feminist communities. Sure. Or even, you know, sort of um, quasi-polities, perhaps. Um, so, yeah, like if I want to run my household or my firm along 
what you might call anti-feminist lines, that is not in conflict with libertarianism. Or my commune, my, right? Or, or my commune or, you know, whatever. Um, that is not in conflict with, with my vision of libertarianism. But if we are talking about, you know, what I think the best version of feminism is, which is a, a kind of a feminism that concerns itself largely with the role of the state first and which treats women as individuals, then 100% compatible with libertarianism and, and maybe even necessitated by it. So, I mean, this is an important point that, uh, that you know, uh, we've talked about, um, lots of people talk about, that a, a truly robust form of libertarian, a capacious form of libertarianism has to allow for groups of people to live conservatively, right? That you need, um, you need to have the, the, the sort of transcendental imagination to imagine that people, you know, like living the wrong way just can't refer to those damn hippies. It's got to refer to the Amish too, right? And that you got to have freedom for both. And um, that said, is there, I mean, just a straight curiosity question. You know, the, the one rule that, that rules them all about all of that, as far as I understand, has always been you have to have the right of exit, right? You can't be held hostage by the Charles Manson people or by the Amish people or anybody in between. If you want to get out because it's not serving your interests, you have to be able to leave. Is there a form of libertarianism that doesn't believe in that? So I think that there is, you know, Essentially, you're right. Essentially, I think any libertarian vision has to have an incredibly robust right of exit. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think there is no wiggle room in that. But I do think you can enter contractual agreements of all kinds that strongly discourage exit, right? And this is something that um, that I think about a lot because, um, you know, you do hear kind of a, a more facile libertarianism where people sometimes say like, oh, well, you don't, you don't like something that your municipality is doing, just leave, right? Mm -hmm. Like the just leave libertarians. And on one level, I think like they are the rightest libertarians. Like they get it in a way that other people are not getting it. Like you do, you, your physical presence in a job, in a community, in a state, you know, is, is a choice. And to act like somehow, you know, people don't, have choices with respect to where they live and what, what kind of arrangements they opt into is, is a trick often that the left uses. Like, oh, I, you know, I was born in this time and place to this family and that, that dictates who I am and constrains me in ways that, um, that are inescapable. And I think that sort of, that misses the level at which we can say, yes, yeah, some choices are very costly, but you still do have that choice and that mm -hmm. that's a super relevant part of what makes any arrangement just. Um, so yes, I think like the right to exit is incredibly important. I do think you can, um, you can shore it up, right? Like you can make ent entering and leaving various arrangements easy. And I would like to do that in many places because I think that's better for humans, right? So I think the free movement of peoples is a really important thing, which is why I'm functionally an open borders libertarian. I think people should be able to come and go from their states and that that would make all states better, or at least make all people better off. Um, and those are actually two different things, right? Um, you know, it may well be that uh, truly open borders would impose costs differentially on different polities. But, you know, what I care about is like, are individ do individuals have the ability to make choices to live lives the way they want to live? Um, and I think that's also true, you know, all the way down to, say, labor law. I think, you know, 
right to work is really important and you should be able to enter and leave employment um, with a lot of ease. Um, not to say that you can't waive those rights, you know, that you can't sort of, again, imp- choose to impose costs on leaving any kind of arrangement, but that it's, um, it, it is going to make for both a freer society and for like a, a better society, a society where people flourish more. So we'll put a pin on the open border thing. Um, so if I'm hearing you wrong and characterizing you in grotesquely caricatured ways, notice sure slavery. Go ahead. Right. Notice okay. slavery. Notice slavery, but maybe to indentured servitude. Right. Yeah, like, I, I love coming on this podcast because you're always like, <laughs> I'm going to make you say it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I'll say it. That's fine. I'm cheerful about saying it. Like, is my top priority in my one life on this planet to argue for indentured servitude? Hard no. That's ridiculous. Everyone who's prioritizing that should sit down and shut up. However, like, yes to indentured servitude. Like, you can enter a very robust contract with someone, even if other people around you are skeeved out by that contract. And, um, you know, it is important to have some background conditions in place, including, like, if the person to whom I have bound myself in indentured servitude violates the terms of our agreement, do I have legal remedy? Like that's really important. And that is often a thing that is missing in historical examples of that practice. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. I don't want to say like, yeah, we really nailed it with with our like historical practice of indentured servitude. But, you know, I think people should be allowed. I mean, we let people get married, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Like that's a, that's a really wild contract if you think about it. And, um, you know, you have written beautifully, uh, about the upsides of entering into that really wild contract. And I myself am married and, and feel them every day, but like, it's weird to me to draw the line between that and some of these other things that a free market person or a libertarian would say, those contracts should be legal too, even if they squick you. Um, and, um, and I don't want to draw that line. Yeah, no, look, I, 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 I think it's fair. I mean, I, I, I feel like there's a lot of devil in the details on the whole let's have, let's, let's green light indentured servitude yeah. thing. Oh, Which yeah. you acknowledge, I mean, I'm not saying you don't. Like, you know, you've definitely uh, never done it right. Yeah. But it's also like, uh, I, and also, I mean, I think there's, a, there's another version of this, which is um, since we're just doing it, like, let's just go full crazy libertarian and talk about medieval Iceland for a minute. Uh-huh. Um, you know, David Friedman, son of Milton, um, one of my faves, uh, he writes about, um, you know, a, a bunch of different arrangements in medieval Iceland that were sort of quasi anarchical, right? Where we like, they built many functions of the state without, um, without having the state perform them. And so that's interesting to people who want to shrink the government. Um, you know, how can we stretch our imaginations to imagine a stateless world where the stuff we want done still gets done? And one thing that uh, is a feature of medieval Icelandic societies is the ways in which they deal with crime. And so instead of like, let's just put everybody in a box and leave them to rot there, there's some sort of creative arrangements about how you discharge your debts to individuals or to kind of debts that have negative externalities to quote unquote society. Um, and, you know, debt, like debt servitude is a thing. Mm-hmm. Again, like, have we done it right historically? <laughs> no, that's a big no. But also, here we are with our non-dischargeable student loans acting like that's fine. And so, I, you know, again, I think many people 
you know, we've already established what you are, madam. We're just negotiating the price. Mm-hmm. Like many people have already given away the idea that you can enter these these sort of unbreakable contracts. And then it's just about which ones we feel like we can enforce within the bounds of a civilized society. Yeah. And, and you know, it was actually Ron, our mutual friend, Ron Bailey, who was the first one to point out to me, which I mentioned on here a few times, that contracts are actually written to explain how you can get out of them, not how you are bound to them, right? If they were like the longer the contract, the more way, the more exceptions to the rule of the contract there are. So if like men, if men were angels, we would not need contracts, right? Exactly. Like that is, yeah, that's right. And like a, a, a free trade, a true free trade agreement says there shall be free trade. A, right. uh, a 10,000 page free trade agreement is a long list of all the ways in which this is not a free trade agreement. Um, but I saw, like, like I'm with you on the state stuff, and I, I promise we will get to some rancor punditry. But um, I'm not in a rush. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on the state stuff. Obviously, I, I come up short some places that that you keep galloping. But um, I'm actually kind of more interested in what you think about the the challenges. I'm trying to be non biased language here the challenges of areas where I think I probably agree with you to a certain extent that the state has no role, but that doesn't mean society shouldn't encourage certain behaviors versus other behaviors or certain choices versus other choices. Um, and, and so like, yes, you want to legal, let's go to the easy one first, right? You want to legalize all drugs. Um, and, uh, but you would not say to your own children, you know, knock yourself out, give it, it literally or figuratively, uh, give heroin a try, right? Um, um, or at the very least, you, if you said give heroin a try, I'm trying to be fair to you, uh, you <laughs> might say be, reason, be reasonable about it. And be careful, right? Uh, I'm really enjoying the vision that you are painting of my hypothetical parenting right now. Carry on. Okay, so, um, um, and let's uh, let's take your own. I'm fine with staying on your kids, but I just I generally find that form of argumentation annoying, so I try not to use it. But your own neighbor, you wouldn't write an op-ed for the Washington Post saying, "Hey, everybody, you know." Only 5% of people who try heroin ever get addicted to it. So your, your numbers are pretty good. Give it a try. It can be kind of fun, right? Um, or maybe you would. So like, what, where, where do you, what is the role for moral suasion and accumulated uh, social wisdom um, in areas where we can agree, at least for the sake of argument, that the state should not be in the business of policing these things? So... You know, in one way, I would say the role of moral suasion is infinite. It's the only thing that matters, right? Um, That, you know, um, especially on issues where there is disagreement in the polity about what the right thing to do is, right? Like I'm thinking of abortion here, maybe. Um, I feel very strongly that like the only, the only morally permissible thing to do is argue with people. Like there's a reason I chose the job I chose and it's because I think it's it's the right level at which to change the world. Um, just like badgering people and, you know, making them a plate of cookies and then delivering a jab on the way out and whatever. Like there's, you know, there are many ways to convince people of things that you believe. And, um, you know, so on one level, I would say like, yeah, 
this is an easy question, Jonah. Like, are, do libertarians think it's fine to tell people not to do heroin sometimes? Like, as an interpersonal matter? Yeah, absolutely. Of course they do. But I would say my libertarianism, not all libertarians, but my libertarianism contains, like, a tremendous amount of, of um, humility about so, my understanding of the social good. Um, like I am, you know, a very much a creature of my time and place. I am um, bounded by my own, you know, limited IQ and uh, maybe EQ as well. And so I maybe I'm just not going to get it right when I think I know what is the social good. Um, and and I want to leave like as a lot of space for that. And so the further I get from my kind of circle of intimacy, right, like my own children, I can basically just tell them what to do. As long as they will listen to me, which is hopefully for a while, I'm going to be like, please don't do heroin. But, um, you know, the minute that you get kind of one layer or two layers out from that, like by the time I get to you, Jonah, like you are in my circle of friends, mm -hmm. but like, I don't really think I can tell you what to do, but we can like argue, we can chat about it. Sure, you sure, know, sure, we sure. Can, um, So I think that there is, you know, I, I think what your question is in part is like, where do like do libertarians have space for the accumulated wisdom of tradition? The answer is clearly yes. But also, I think it's just like the constant temptation of Immanuel Kant. Like we desperately want to universalize all of our imperatives. Like we just want to make a rule that's going to work for everyone that is the rule for human behavior. Like we have this desire in our hearts and that is like a desire that should be fought because there's pro there are probably very, very, very few truly universalizable rules. And even the ones we think we know, we might be wrong about. Like I, the example that I always think about here is, um, is eating animals. Like I, I, you know, my household has gone back and forth between vegetarianism and flexitarianism and pescatarianism and other like horrible over specific words, um, to just eating meat. Um, but I, I think we might be wrong about, like, as a society, we might have this one wrong. Mm -hmm. And we're going to look back later and be like, oh, we were wrong. And so, you know, if we can get something as fundamental as that wrong from a moral perspective, like, what is, what is it morally incumbent upon us to do in terms of, like, our stewardship of other creatures and maximizing the number of utils on the planet, including chicken utils? Like, you know, there's all these ways to think about it. But um, I'm hardly the only person to ask this question. I don't have a, a clear answer to it, but I suspect that like society doesn't either. Um, and, you know, slavery, of course, is, a, is an example of this where like people kind of thought they had an answer about why this was okay sometimes and um, they were wrong. Um, so I, I have like a very, very, very high bar for we as a society have figured out some stuff. And even if we don't encode it in law, we should exert like a very large amount of social pressure to get those outcomes. And I, I'm just skeptical of how long that list really is. That's fair. I mean, it's, it's funny you phrase it that way. Cause I think when I think of libertarianism, I think it is nothing if not purely the codification of Kantian universal rules. It is just that there are just very few Kantian universal rules that, you guys want to institutionalize and instantiate, right? So, but like, like libertarians believe murder is wrong and that's a universal thing, right? There's like, you're that 
The, well, you can get to murder is wrong. A lot of there are many roads that lead to murder is wrong uh, that don't include like Emmanuel Kant's daily walk. Like, I, I don't know. I think. OK, but yeah, um, but look, I mean, liberty, you know, uh, you know, uh, maximizing liberty is good. Um, you know, I mean, I can go down a list, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I don't know the Bentham and Benthamite do no, you know, uh, harm, you know, uh, minimization stuff. The trade is good that in a free society, capitalist acts between consenting adults should be tolerated to the maximum extent possible. All of these kinds of things. My point is not that I, I just think it's interesting that, that you, you come from a position of skepticism towards universal rules when basically the only rules libertarianism has are the universal ones. Well, I think any, any political philosophy that has rules uh, is subject to that critique or that analysis. Um, and that's all of them. So, um, you know, I don't think that's true. I mean, I think any, any defensible one probably does, Okay, but like, like monarchism, right. Monarchy, you know, it's like, has only I can wear the color purple or, you know, um, but it's still like the universalizable rule is like, you know, if, if you are monarch then, right. Like it's still, that rule applies to everyone. It's just, you know, um, so I think, yeah, I don't know. I, like, I, I do think I would say it's not about kind of universalizability. I would say it's about equality. And this, of course, is like the great, the great debate, right? Like liberty versus equality. We used to talk about that all the time in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Nobody talks about that anymore. Yeah, we had much better conversations in the 90s. I miss those days. The kids these days, they don't (laughs) fight about liberty versus equality like we used to. Um, But, you know, all the 90s stuff is coming back. So maybe this one's coming back too. Um, You know, I think, you know, I have come around over the years really to the idea that um, libertarianism, and again, this gets back to the beginning of our conversation, like what the places that overlaps with feminism are like, like there's a fundamental equality that humans have, and we should encode that in our laws. We should treat them equally um, under the law. And the minute that you try to do that, you realize that we can only have very, very simple laws um, that do a limited amount because in fact, like lots of things about humans are unequal, right? We have different endowments. We have different starting points. We have different aptitudes. We have different interests. And so you're going to end up with unequal outcomes. And so you have to kind of go back to that level of like, well, wh- where are we equal? And that's at like a very, very basic level. So, um, you know, in that sense, like I, I sometimes when I'm like feeling spicy, I'm like, I'm the real egalitarian, but like that's never convinced anyone and it's sort of tendentious. So I, tr- I try to avoid it. But here I am on your podcast doing it because that's what you drive me to, Jonah. That's right. I, 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 I poke you with sharp sticks. Um, so, uh, well, this, this I, I was debating whether to go here, but um, you sort of teed it up nicely. Um, so. You know, how to put that. So there's a difference between, I mean, as you well know, there's a difference between saying um, men and women should be treated equally versus men and women should be treated the same. Because there are, um, there are differences between the sexes. Um, and starting with things like only one half of the two sexes can make babies. And therefore there are I think it's fair to say, uh, different strings attached to that, you know, on the plus and the minus side as a society, as a matter of law and all these various things. This actually gets back to where I was coming from, you know, instead of heroin as heroin, heroism, heroinism and heroin. That's that I think we just wrote that. We wrote the title for this podcast just now. Uh, Veni, Vici, Vidi, whatever. Uh, yeah. So, um, um, uh, 
it seems to me, absent all sorts of caveats and all the rest, that there is a certain amount of, for want of a less condescending term, faddishness to the some of the transgender stuff. The idea that you're seeing these huge spikes in numbers of young people defining themselves somewhere on a spectrum and all these kinds of things. The, the sort of dysphoria stuff that you keep reading about and all that. Um, it seems to me that this is a little bit like St. Vitus's dance, that it is a kind of social contagion. Um, doesn't mean that one should have a hard heart towards the cases where it's, it's a real thing. And there are cases where it is a real thing, but, and I think we probably agree more than some people would suspect about what the law should do about any of this. My answer would be very little, but by law, I mean people with guns essentially. Right. Um, but I guess the part of the problem I have with, with libertarianism is that what appeals to liber- what, what, what makes libertarianism fun for young people is the sort of radical non-judgmentalism that comes with it. The, um, the sense in which one universalizes the feeling of everything is permitted that one feels when one is 19 years old into something that they think is a, an entirely political philosophy. And so you have this, it, it makes libertarianism ill-equipped at times to say the unpopular things when there is um, a sort of libertine-ish social fad at work. And, you know, one libertarian answer to that is, yeah, but you got to let people make their own mistakes and they learn the lessons and that's, that's how fads go away. And what's good about the fad will stick around because it actually has, has merit to it, which may in fact be true. But that also minimizes the fact that some of these fads actually can do real harm to people. And, you know, I, I personally think telling some tomboy girl that, oh, you're really, you were born male and we're going to like make it impossible for you to have kids later in life or we're going to give you these hormone blockers and these kinds of things um, in service to some ideological commitment that the parents have is really, really bad. And that is somewhere where I'm much more tempted to have the law step in. How do you adjudicate these kinds of situations where it is admittedly super problematic to have the state step in, but it's also super problematic just to say, who are we to judge everyone let a thousand flowers bloom and let these, the, these things sweep through and we'll figure out later whether there was any merit to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would, I would come back actually to something that we were just saying earlier, which is that I, I think there is a thing between state action and who am I to judge? Like I'm judgmental as hell. I'm super judgmental. Oh my God. People <laughs> hate me. And I love you. So I'm I'm happy to be judgmental about choices by parents or others that I think are bad. But, you know, I said earlier, I think the proper venue for dealing with disagreement about abortion, right? So like literal murder in the eyes of people who are pro-life. I think the proper venue for dealing with that is still interpersonal argumentation. It's still like op-eds and church you know, I was going to say church happy hours. What is wrong with me? My God. (laughs) I don't go to church. Can you tell? Um, So church picnics, church picnics. That's what I was looking for. They have picnics. Um, I I can confirm. They got picnic pancakes, suppers. I've heard about those. Um, Anyway, I think that is like very clearly 
true that even in extremely high stakes questions, when there is deep disagreement, we just have to rule out state action um, for the most part, right? Like, so again, we have a law against murder because like literally every moral theory is like, okay, we get to no murder, right? Like we just get there. Um, but there's deep disagreement about a lot of other things that really matter a lot. And so I do think it really matters a lot if we as a society are getting particularly youth transition wrong. It, it matters a lot. It matters to those individuals. Um, and, um, and it matters to, you know, all the people around them. It matters to all the people who are paying for their health care, both now and potentially later when, um, you know, damage might need to be undone. Um, like it, it, it matter. Of course it matters. Like, you know, I think that sometimes people think libertarians are these kind of, they're like radical in their atomism in a way that like d- fails to acknowledge that people have impact on each other. And I think, I think that's a misunderstanding. Of course, uh, you know, even things that we say are quote unquote victimless crimes, um, things that shouldn't be illegal, still have impact on other people. So, you know, I guess what I want to say is, I think it is possible that the critique of where we are as a society right now in terms of our treatment of trans youth in particular is wrong. I think we might currently be at a bad equilibrium, but I still just think like, it is not the role of the state. It is not the role of the state. Like these are, these are, you know, you and I would say in many, many, in many, many ways that we want to give parents as wide a latitude as possible to parent their children, how they see fit. Now, children are difficult. I think the last time I was on this podcast, you and I spent a while on the problem of children, um, which is, which is a real one, but, um, but still, you know, leaving aside the kids for a minute, because they are, we should always keep perspective on this such tiny slice, such a tiny slice. We're talking about like, like a thousand kids that are currently running our entire political discourse, right? Mm-hmm. And so that it is always worth keeping in mind. Um, I think for adults, it's really clear to me that the the state has no role. Um, you know, if you if you want to get any manner of body modification to your own body, you do you, baby. Like, get, yeah. get no, that I agree thing with that. where you yeah. cut your tongue in half and, like, you know, be mm-hmm. forked tongue. Like, you know, get reconstructive surgery after a terrible accident. Like, you know, I think gender surgeries are often somewhere in between those two things. Um, and and so that's, um, you know, that to me is a clear case. And then I think it is still reasonable, both in terms of adults and in terms of of kids to just keep talking about it. I don't, I don't have a, like, if there is enough discourse, the truth will out and like, we will have progress and, you know, the arc of history bends toward, you know, reasonable gender norms. Like, I don't know that that's the case, but, um, but I still think that is, that is the only kind of morally permissible mechanism to work this out. Well, so I'm interested actually from you, like, what do you think about the parts of this conversation that are about restricting the flow of information? So a lot of this, you know, it's like, it's, there's very little actual medical treatment to people under 18, or let's say people under 15 or 16 happening here. But there's, there's a lot of fighting about, you know, are we stocking books about, you know, gender issues in our public library? So where, where are you on that stuff? Because I think I would, I could actually make a, I could tell a story about how the Jonah Goldberg position could go either way. Yeah. So I'm, um, 
you know, Rousseau. I, I, you could also tell a story about how the Jonah Goldberg position could go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have all sorts of stories about the Jonah Goldberg position. It's um, um, no, um, I'm not normally one to positively quote Jean Jacques Rousseau. I think that's fair. Um, but uh, you know, he has this line where he says, "Censorship is only useful for preserving morals. It's it's useless for restoring them." And I think he's largely right about that. I personally simply would not talk to kids about this stuff at school at all until at least 10th or 11th grade, if at all. Right. I just, I, and I, I certainly wouldn't have institutions of higher education. Like I, I just know too many stories about how, you know, in the DC area about various uh, schools that are in the same way that schools used to be like, we got to get a good quarterback are now like, we have to have our own transgender kid. And they are, you have a sense in which it is a sort of badge of honor that the in, institutional incentives um, among certain elites to go whole hog with this stuff just smell like a, a certain amount of groupthink and fad. That's not to say that, it, that you know, lots of schools are going to have individual kids who have real issues that, and, and, and that I think that there should be opportunities to deal with that. But uh, it seems to me that a lot of, like I have a friend who's you know told me about it at one school that they were involved in, where a kid came in and said that she was a boy now, and um, the school immediately lavished praise on this kid. Immediately, sort of uh, started drafting press releases and yada yada yada. The parents were called in at a remarkably late stage in this process, <laughs> and the parents are like. That's not what's going on. She wants to play on the boys' soccer team, and she thought this is the way that she could. And um, and it, again, and she wasn't wrong. And she well, she it was certainly one way to go. And my only point is, is that institutionally, everybody's on sort of high alert to be as empathetic and as immediately supportive and and confirming of these kinds of things, which is just a it. There's a, and I'm not trying to be as pejorative as this sounds, but that's a very witch hunty atmosphere where everybody is on cultural alert, institutional alert to confirm a specific theory that doesn't have any new, huge amount of science behind it, that is clearly in part a matter of social contagion. Occam's razor sort of explanations of what, what are going, what's going on are dismissed as bigotry um, and violation of this new sort of cultural fatwa. And, um, and so I'm, I'm of the view, I agree with you that once certain issues are out of the bag, all you can do is really talk them through. So I'm kind of with you on that. But I am much more sympathetic to the idea that certain questions should be closed, that certain, certain issues should not be up for further debate. And uh, we can debate which, the, which of those issues there are, but there are, some, there are some easy ones, like slavery. Like, I, I have no problem with college campuses saying... Yeah, we're not going to invite anybody in favor of slavery. And I don't, if you want to call that censorship, fine. It's censorship. I have no problem with, with, with censorship conceptually. Um, you know, this is one of my oldest standing arguments with, with, uh, with, with libertarians of the left and the right. And it's just weird now that the people who are in favor of censorship are such jackasses. Um, because that's not what I was talking about. Um, but like, it's so I, I, weird that these censors are jackasses. He said. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like when you, when you get caught up in censorship because of a current raging political fad, odds are that 
it, you're attracting yeah. a different kind of crowd. And like my point was always sort of an Irving Crystal kind of point that community standards are a thing that local communities, you know, like Band in Boston was a good, you know, I remember one of the first times I heard Irving speak, he was like, I'm so nostalgic. You know, when I was a kid, they'd say a book was banned in Boston and that's guaranteed to be a bestseller in New York. And like, what's wrong with that? And um, letting people control, have, have maximal control of their kids and their community at a local level, so long as there's a right to exit, so long as the basic civil liberties stuff are protected, um, seems to me the only way to cut this Gordian knot. And the problem that we have today, and I think your point about how it's only a handful of kids, really, statistically speaking, is a good one. One of the problems with social media is, and Megan McArdle, you know, makes this point very well, is that it makes the entire country seem like a really small town where everybody's in your business. And yeah, so that's it, actually what I was going to say. When you were giving that example of the school, yeah. like my my overwhelming, well, I had two responses. The first response is, like our culture of teaching and teachers and school administration right now, like that's what that story indicts, right? Like it's not mm-hmm. like our gender ideology. It's no, like no, why are right. schools yeah, yeah. so bad, right? right? So first of all, there's that. I agree with that. But second, I think it's like, have we tried minding our own damn business? Like that, you know, that is like a really viable option that people just seem to be not in favor. And, you know, I think like an excess, like there are worse things in this life than to have an excess of empathy and consideration. And in some ways, this is also what gets us just woke culture generally, right? It's like PC culture. At at its very core, there is a reasonable insight, which is like, be nice. Don't, you know, like treat people how they ask to be treated. Use the words they prefer if it's no skin off your back. Like whatever. There's sort of a very basic, basic level where like, Miss manners and like the simplest form of PC converge. It's just like we are looking for some um, social coordination points that are going to make everything easier for everyone. And if we just have rules about how we're supposed to behave, then great. Um, let's just do that. Like the fork is always on the left, not because the fork has to be on the left, because like, it, you know, the the platonic form of the, ta- the place setting involves the fork being on the left, but just because like if we all agree, it's better. And I think there are some things to be said for a social equilibrium that is like highly empathetic and highly open to, you know, somebody showing up and being like, I made up a new gender and here I'm, this is what I am now. And I do think as evidenced by our social obsession with this, like gender is fascinating and complicated. Like I do think in the end, the vast, 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 vast majority of people are like, I am either a man or a woman. I identify as that. I am content with that and I will live my whole life in that way. Like the vast majority of people, that's how it's going to go. But there's a bunch of people who would like to try something more complicated. And like as someone who is squarely within the gender binary, but like annoyingly outside the political binary, you know, I would not compare the experience of being libertarian to being trans directly, but there are some similarities, right? Like every single time someone is like, but you're really right wing, right? And it's like, no, I'm a different <laughs> thing. I'm not that thing or that thing. Like, hear me out. What if there were other things besides the two categories you desperately want to put me into? And it's like, people get mad about that in ways that are disproportionate. And so I, I sort of think of gender that way. Like, if people want to make up categories or if people want to historically discover retroactively that these categories are always existed and weave a story around that. Like that's all fine with me, but I do feel like 
there is a version of youth transition or tomboydom or whatever where, you know, maybe a kid wears a dress for a while and grows their hair out and then is like, "Mm, actually, like puberty hit. I have some different thoughts and feelings now. I'm going to cut my hair and go back to wearing pants. And nobody needs to get it in that business. Like, it just could be, like, not a thing. And, and you know, there are some structural things I think we could do to make that easier. And um, one is, like, maybe we don't need to be identifying people's genders on every single piece of paper we've ever filled out. Like, there's a lot of times that I am checking female, and I am like, why could this possibly matter? Mm-hmm. And there are times when it matters, of course. But, like, I, you know... We just ask this question as a matter of course, and then we encode it in all of our documents and we encode it in our law in ways that are not, for the most part, necessary or even helpful. Just backing away from some of that would make it not people's business. Like if our goal is for people to mind their own business, we need to make it easier for people to not have to know the answer to that question. Like a big part of what's happening here is like kids who transition at school they have to fill out 30 forms at the beginning of the year. And if they start checking a different gender in those boxes, the school has to reconcile that. And like, what if we just didn't, man? Yeah, no, I hear you. And I'm sympathetic to some of that. I really am. At the same time, it feels like this is one of these classic examples of where um, the default bias of the libertarian is more on the side of the individual against the mob and it's weird like 90% yeah. of the time on this podcast i'm like i'm like the individual guy but minority cultures owe majority cultures tolerance too right that it's it's right and that i think is where these politics have gone wrong like i, right. I agree with you on that that like here here as in so many other kind of um messed up places in our discourse we are we went straight from you know that which is not prohibited is mandatory right like we went straight from never acknowledging the existence that anyone might have any kind of unusual gender identity at all. Like it doesn't exist to everyone shall acknowledge that it not only exists, but maybe actually none of us have a gender. Like it's just a real, it's a real pivot and it's, we didn't need to do that. We didn't have to do that. Right. But sort of like your point about how the, my story, the real story there is about how bad the school is, right? Part of the problem with a lot of these institutions, which is why I say it's a matter, it's sort of, it's a fad, it's social contagion, it's got a witch hunty feel to it, is is that whole institutions are being asked to bend to celebrate and endorse one individual's choice. And the most obvious example is in sports stuff. It just seems to me that one can be empathetic and supportive and all of those things and at the same time say... You know, life's unfair. You were born in the wrong body. We get that. We're you're gonna we're gonna do what we can to support you about being in the right body. But one of the parts of this being unfair is that as a as a someone born biologically male who's gone through puberty, um, there's a lot more testosterone in your system, and you have different muscle sets. You're not going to be able to c- compete at the collegiate or the Olympic level against female swimmers. And I'm sorry, and that sucks. But like, there are lots of things that suck for people. And um, the idea that entire institutions need to rewrite themselves, benefit or, or, or confirm or endorse or celebrate one individual's source of identity 
just strikes me as unreasonable, just simply unreasonable. And I, and I think lots of people have lots of unreasonable responses to a lot of this stuff. Um, I'm not saying that that's not the case. Um, there's a lot of moral panic on the right about this stuff. But at the same time, it just seems to me that like um, institutions should not have to, the many should not have to give over. Because like there are lots of young women who, who, who a huge part of their identity is to be great swimmers. And like, like that gets, if they prioritize that and their orientation towards these questions, they're seen, they're cast as bigots in service to um, a notion of identity that is not necessarily bolstered by science. And I, so I, I, at the very least, I think there was a reasonable debate on both sides of these things but the reasonable debate on the right side of this is often cast as nothing but bigotry. Yeah, I mean, I, my, I will put my priors on the table here, which is that I could not care less about sports. Oh, my God, I don't care. That's fine. And I think that it's, you know, that it's interesting that we do come to this sticking point because, um, you know, I'm I am 100 uh, percent. Do we still say red pilled? I'm red pilled about the. The particular narrow point, and this is actually um, speaking to Megan McArdle, this is the thing that Megan McArdle um, initially kind of incepted into my brain. Like almost all men are stronger than almost all women. Mm -hmm. Like the strongest woman is like stronger than some of the weakest. Men. Like it's the overlap is so little. And I think mm -hmm. that we get confused partially because like, you know, we always have like, the strong female lead who's like doing karate and, you know, killing men in movies. And, uh, and also because of kind of one of the downstream effects of a certain subspecies of feminism, that's like a, I can do anything you can do better feminism. Um, we get a little confused about that. So like, I do think this is like a physical fact of the world that is relevant in sports, but I don't care. And so then if I don't care, where does that take me? And it takes me, um, actually, what, where it takes me is to years ago, uh, I worked as a researcher and assistant for John Tierney when he was an op-ed columnist at the New York Times. And he, one of his hobby horses was like, we should do two different Olympics. And one Olympics, we can do this kind of thing that we do now, which is like amateur and drug-free and has, you know, all of these other kind of structures. But what if we did another Olympics that was just like, have at it, babies. Like you take all your steroids and you, you know, compete for any country and, you know, get your endorsement, like do it all. Um, and like, can anyone deny that those Olympics would be better and more fun? I think it's clear that they would. Um, you know, I think there's a pluralistic response here and it's hard because our institutions are not built that way right now. But there is like, I think there will be, there will be some segmenting off or like some sports are going to write their rules in a way that make more space for, for, um, for trans athletes and some sports are going to write their rules in a way that, you know, basically conforms to standard binary gender, um, or binary sex, I guess. And, and then people can kind of do the sports they want to do or opt in or opt out and we're going to fight about it. But, um, you know, there, there is room there. Are, I don't, I don't think it is obviously true that only one way is right here. Like it might be that like, yeah, it's a bummer for, you know, high school student athletes. I, I fully agree with that. Um, but it's just not clear to me that we should like figure out our entire public policy on this matter by reverse engineering 
high school girls swimming is important for biological females. Like that doesn't sound right, does it? Like it's an intuition test, I understand, but I think it's a bad one um, or at least an inadequate one. And again, like I, I like I like a world where there's like a little bit of space for glitter beards and, you know, <laughs> trans masculine, you know, lesbians with cool tattoos. Like, I don't know. I like living in that world. I enjoy that aesthetic. That's just me. And if you don't like that world, there are certainly, um, you know, geographical locations you can go where you're less likely to be exposed to that. But um, but I don't, I, you know, I still think the kind of the core insight of, you know, our institutions are not owed stasis. Like we don't, it's like the we don't, it is not necessarily a good thing. You know, you were talking about kind of, it's not fair to ask institutions to pivot or to like reshape themselves around the demands of a, of a single person. I think that's true, but it's, it is also true that sometimes the concerns or complaints of a single person highlight problems with an institution. And sometimes the problems are of individual and personal bias. And sometimes they're just like, why in God's name are teachers arbitrating gender in the first place? And my my inclination is to move in that direction. Um, I think a parallel here is like when people talk about systemic racism in policing, like there's, you know, there's a, a version of that that's like all cops are personally racist and that's the problem here. I think that's dumb. That's clearly not true. But are our systems built in ways that are like disproportionately punitive toward, you know, black people? Yeah. And some of that is just like, cause we wrote it into our laws so we can at least fix the laws. But then we also probably need to like deal with the institutional structures. In this case, I would say like our, our educational systems are currently built in a way that makes it very easy to hijack them for activism. And I would like to minimize that. Um, I will say like, I am more pessimistic now than I once was about the possibilities of kind of school choice within a state system to solve these problems. Because you can already see the politicization of the granting of charters or eligibility for vouchers in ways that I think are just going to push the whole debate down one level, even if we have robust school choice. Um, I've definitely become much more of a, you know, the, the, the move is like to opt out completely, you know, homeschooling, unschooling, independent schooling, private schooling, parochial schooling. Like, I think if we are going to preserve robust, a robust educational ecosystem, including schools that make space for people who don't want to be a part of this conversation at all, and schools that make space for people who only want this to be the only thing they think about, right? Like a true, a true school choice regime is going to have like trans academy. And so conservatives, I think, need to grapple with that. Like, I think that's an okay outcome, but I, I think lots of people wouldn't. And we can't do school choice, but only school choice for the choices I like. It's funny. I'm more pessimistic about school choice these days than I used to be, but for completely different reasons. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> That's and, good. Because um, first of all, Eeyore, Eeyore party over here for school choice. As I often say on this podcast, I have school choice, right? I sent my kid to private grade school, private high school, private college. And um, at least the grade school, or at least the high school, when it came to a lot of the sort of politically correct stuff was as bad as the, the, as any public school, as far as I can tell. 
And there are other private schools in D.C. that are worse than any public school I've ever heard of um, in terms of the sort of ideological stuff. The, the, on your point about like the sports thing, um, I'm not a huge sports guy either. Um, haven't been for a very, very long time. But I don't necessarily think I don't care about sports, so therefore I don't think the stakes are particularly high is a great response. Um, in part because of, I think your much stronger response earlier is how our institutions suck. And for a bunch of, we have, we have, I've seen this among, among my kids' peers. An enormous number of kids are told in like fourth grade, pick a sport and become great at it if you want any chance of going to the college of your choice. And so these kids invest 10,000, 20,000 hours of their lives into these sports and it becomes who they are in a huge way. Now, I think that's dysfunctional and gross, and it's not what sports are supposed to be in, you know, in high school or in, or in grade school, to be sure. Um, but our institutions have created this way because that, that is the way that, that a, a whole tribe of people can get around the other, the other obstacles to elite colleges in our meritocracy that have been set up for them. And, um, and that's where I'm pessimistic is that I think that basically we have a kind of tribal capture of a lot of these institutions where, um, it's very strange. We have this set of elites, this sort of new class, whether it's the Schumpeterian one or the whatever, but like this, this new class cultural elite who controls the commanding heights of certain important parts of our culture that do not understand that they are in fact, they are operating like a religion or an ethnicity or, or whatever. They are not Walter Lippmann's ideal of disinterested technocratic, you know, uh, public servants. They have all sorts of in deep and abiding cultural baggage that maps very much like a religious commitment or, a, or a deep cultural commitment um, that they do not recognize as anything other than the objective truth. And they run these institutions based and they establish all these shibboleths that make it difficult for people to get through. I mean, this is like my recurring point about why Asian kids are, have so uh, we're having trouble getting into Harvard or MIT or anything. It's not because like there's this huge, um, you know, anti-Asian bias in, in that crowd it's that the Asian kids, um, whether they come from, you know, India and Pakistan or from, for, from China or Vietnam, tend to be first or second generation Americans and they have very bourgeois immigrant notions about what education is for. And their parents do too. And they didn't grow up learning to speak the lingua franca of wokeness and social justice. And so that, that, that is a red flag in the admissions process. And so I, my problem is with the way these institutions are being run in a way that is in accordance with a cultural milieu that these people don't realize is a cultural milieu in the same way that fish don't know they're wet. And they try to, and they, they, so there's a great bigotry from a great height against sort of normal bourgeois values um, that is exacerbated by social media and the crappiness of Fox News and all sorts of other things. But that's why I don't think you can get real school choice because the people who are inclined to go into these professions and that 
these professions are inclined to ex- pull up the ladder into them is very much a job. It's a guild mentality job protection racket. Try getting into Columbia Journalism School, right? If you are an open, avowed right. conservative, right? But also definitely don't because it's absolutely not worth the money. But Yeah, it's also no, an incredibly I mean, stupid yeah. thing. But like the Columbia Journalism people yeah, yeah. then go out and only hire Columbia Journalism people because it is a there's a there's a signaling effect of having that piece of sheepskin and it's not that you're going to be better at the freaking job it's that you agree with us on these sort of unspoken shibboleths yeah so i think you're right that we are currently at the kind of leftmost swing of the pendulum on where you know what unexamined assumptions our elites are trafficking in but 60 years ago all of the unexamined assumptions that our elites were trafficking in in the educational system were the opposite ones, right? I mean, it's not as if there was like a time when we didn't have unexamined tribal assumptions that were being brokered by elites. And, you know, I think the idea is that, um, leaving aside the kind of trans stuff, just like the ideas about gender that dominated our public education system were, were not great in the, you know, say in the 60s, right? Like just on the very simplest level of like girls out here in the home ec class and boys in shop class. Like, I don't know, that doesn't seem, that's not the right equilibrium either. And those people, when they were, when they were establishing that curriculum and, um, you know, channeling boys toward college and girls away from college and whatever else, like I'm doing a caricature, but it, you know, similarly, we were doing a caricature of the status quo now. Um, you know, those people were not, self-aware or critical about their assumptions and they were just happened to be the ones in charge of the institution. So I, I do think we are currently at a pendulum swing. I do not think it's new. I don't think we'd like that this is a thing that was like invented right now. I just think like someone's going to be in, if, if we do a public system that is extremely high stakes, someone's going to be in charge of it. People are going to fight to be in charge of it. The fact that it's also, you know, compounded by a politically active and wealthy union, um, is unsurprising is definitely, you know, part of the problem, but, um, there will always be someone in charge of these institutions so long as there are large institutions to be in charge of. Uh, and this is the place where I'm sympathetic to my kind of localist libertarian pals. I'm not ultimately one of them because I think, um, you know, there, 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 there are a variety of problems with the like, well, we'll just get it as local as possible and hope for the best. But, um, the bigger the institution, the wealthier the institution, the more likely and ripe it is for capture. And that capture will always be political, um, has always been political, I think. Yeah, no, I, 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 look, I, I agree with that as an objective matter and sort of like saying, you know, you, there will always be a top 1% because that's a fact of math, right? right but I, this is different than the math thing. This is like, you know, specifically have the, have the current, is the current woke teacher's core and administrator core, like, did they invent this new thing that they're shoving down people's throats? And I don't think that's true. I think the teacher core and administrative core have always been shoving something down people's throats. It's like how they conceive of their jobs. Yeah, I, I guess where I, I guess where I disagree, and I think we largely agree, but I think where we disagree in your depiction of it is the 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 ideological cultural homogeneity that we see now across elite institutions. I mean. What it's sort of like, you know, my friend Kevin Williamson likes to point out that it's, um, I think it's Lubbock is the largest city in Texas that's run by Republicans or the Republicans have a chance to win because Democrats control all the others, right? 
what is the what is the most significant cultural institution in the United States with the arguable at best exception of the Catholic Church um, that is um, that is recognized by elites as an important that has a seat at the table in the national conversation about policy culture whatever that is not part of this groupthink. And I mean, other than, I guess, Fox News, but again, they're not welcome in the conversation. But like, what is, what is an, like, because it used to be, yeah, the New York Times went one way, but the Chicago Tribune went another way, right? It used to be that, you know, uh, Hearst newspapers were right-wing and whatever else were left-wing. There used to be a lot more regionally or sectorally driven heterogeneity among elite institutions. Some universities were very stodgy and conservative. Some were much more experimental and, and sort of left-wing. Um, I'm hard-pressed to think of elite institutions in the, out, out of the top 50 that aren't sort of all prone to the same all flocks, you know, fl- all birds flock together kind of thing. I'm, I'm actually legitimately curious what you can think of that differs from that because that's that's where I think the problem is, is that where you have smart professional people who are interested in a certain kind of vision of America and all of the institutions that they conceivably want to work in welcome one point of view and only one point of view, you are going to get some really dysfunctional groupthink that is going to create a lot of bad populist reactions. And I don't think it was nearly as monolithic and homogeneous as it is today. Yeah, I think it depends a little on how you deal with what we might call like economic institutions here. I mean, I think it's certainly some of the kind of large corporations that are significant in American life are at the very least, you know, led with um, led by people who have differing ideologies. Now, does ESG exist? Totally. Is there, you know, are there movements to, towards stakeholder capitalism and all that? Absolutely. That, that pull I mean, are off. HR directors anything other than sort of political commissars of the existing, you know, worldview? I mean, like, I, I'm hard. I mean, like, okay, Coke Hashtag Industries. never HR. But I mean, but, yeah, that's something. And I, and I guess I think I, I am not, I, I, suspect that we have smuggled in a little bit of tautology here. Like if we're defining all elite institutions as sort of urban intellectual um, or kind of political institutions that, and those, like those places are lefty now. um, Like that's true, but also like, are those the institutions that broadly matter to Americans that like are how they live their lives? I think historically, you know, I'm super interested in though, like functionally illiterate about the decline of mainline Protestantism, like the people who identify as none or none of the above or spiritual or whatever now who used to have a denomination they affiliated with. I think those were often sources of a kind of um, at least a kind of primitive, like communitarian conservatism, if not an ideological conservatism. Um, And I think, you know, um, arguably like all the kind of zoning and housing policy stuff that's happening in this world. Like that's, that's all bedeviled by a very, you know, static, like people literally want to conserve what they have. Um, I think PTAs are often extremely conservative institutions. Like I'm, I guess I'm thinking about like, what are institutions that actually matter to people's lives as opposed to like, are we mad about the fact that universities are lefty? Like I am too. I don't like that, but I'm not, I, I, I'm just not, that doesn't, quite strike me as like 
here, here is a thing that has changed. Like, I, I, I agree that there was potentially more diversity in cities and among elites in the past, and that we have kind of like um, geographically clustered uh, ideologically. And, you know, I think last time I was on, you and I talked about polarization and the vilification of people who think differently than you. And that is clearly on the upswing in ways that are really unhealthy. But um, I don't know. I, I, I also feel like I'm not out here keeping score of like what are conservatives in charge of because I think they're bad at it too. Yeah, okay, well, like, I mean, like, you know. what, what are, what are, <laughs> what, what are libertarians in charge of? I mean, it's sort Nothing. of the same point. Yeah, so, like, I mean, my, I, I think this point matters insofar as societies, civilizations, nations are certainly figuratively, but to a significant extent, they are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And, you know, this is a very Deidre McCloskey point. And that's one of the reasons why you get the great miracle, you get the miracle or the, the great fact or whatever we are, we're calling great it. Great enrichment. Week, the great enrichment. Um, is because the story we told ourselves about ourselves changed 300 years ago. The people writing the story about ourselves, whether it's Hollywood, mainstream media, uh, the universities, publishing, uh, fashion industry. I mean, you can just go down a very long list they tend to have, there, there tends to be a lot of homogeneity to it. And I think it's of a piece with this polarization stuff, which you mentioned, which is like, you know, it used to be when, when we were kids, I'm a little older than you, I assume. Um, but when we were kids, um, you'd have to ask a follow-up question. If someone said they're a Democrat, you'd have to ask a follow-up question to find out whether or not they were a liberal or a conservative, never mind a libertarian, right? Because one wasn't synonymous with the other. Same thing with Republican. The number of states where people voted split ticket was, you know, for Democratic senators, but Republican presidents or vice versa, was astounding 50 years ago. And the the big sort thing, I think, feeds into this. And I think that, like, I know we're now over an hour and you got to go, and I promised there'd be rank punditry. We have no rank punditry to speak of. But I will, I will smuggle it in in this last point, and then I'll let you answer. It is, as the Marxists might say, it is no coincidence that Joe Biden wants to forgive student debt. Because as a cultural matter, which is also a political matter, a demographic matter, if you're forgiving, if you forgiving student debt of, you know, a large slice of the people that, a majority of the people that you're forgiving student debt for are persuadable demographic, I mean, democratic or progressive voters. You know, there's a point, Nate Cohen, lots of people have made that, that, White college grads are becoming the new backbone of the Democratic Party. That is a significant, not, never mind the people who work in the education industry, right, which are basically an ATM for the Democratic Party. And that sort of gets to my point about how there's sort of this kind of cultural regulatory capture of this part of our culture that um, this, the debt relief thing is a natural consequence of that phenomenon. What say you? Ms. Yeah, Mandalore. I mean, I think it is undeniable that the particularly the way that this student loan forgiveness plan was structured and executed, there is no explanation for the way it went down other than electoral gamesmanship and partisanship. There simply isn't. It is not, it does not help the least well off, which is a stated goal of the, you know, m many people in politics, but especially Democrats. It is, it is, it does not do anything in service of equity. It is probably not legal. We'll just like set that whole right. shenanigan aside. Um, and, um, 
the timing is, you know, deeply suspect. Like, yes. So I, I think the, the way in which the student loan stuff went down does show the ways in which elites will manipulate institutions for their own gain, sometimes in this like transparent transactional way that's like, frankly, disgusting. Um, if you want some rank punditry on this, I do urge your listeners to go to reason.com where we are currently losing our minds at the rate of like <laughs> five articles a day about this. Like it's really bad. And it's, and it's, you know, it, it is, it is both in itself bad and it is also an illustration of the kind of like political will to power politics that both sides are engaging in that, are, that is just incredibly destructive. Um, but I do, I still think there is always an elite consensus and the current elite consensus I am not enjoying. Like I agree, I agree with you on that broadly, but neither did I enjoy previous elite consensus. Um, <laughs> consensi. Consensi. <laughs> um, and I think that some of the elements of, of the, of the new elite consensus are not bad. I think like there's, there is, um, there's a lot to be said for, um, moving away from, you know, for instance, you know, the arguments from authority, uh, that you would have seen in a kind of Walter Cronkite news media. Like we now have different logical fallacies studying our papers and, um, and uh, television channels and perhaps even podcasts. But, um, you know, there, I think there are just like many, many ways in which we are going to always have kind of an evolving set of views that people who hold power want to impose on others. Um, and I think that also a lot of people's lives just exist outside of that entire conversation and that um, focusing on that would probably be good for those of us who are extremely online and extremely political and live in Washington, D.C. Um, because it can feel kind of apocalyptic. It can feel like everyone agrees except me mm -hmm. and the world is ending. Uh, and I, you know, I don't actually think that's true. I don't think that's how it is in the world. Um, it's reasonable to be concerned, but I... I think I think there there is always a bad elite consensus. Like we're always sort of trading out good parts and bad parts. And, you know, I think the part of the reason that conservatives don't dominate institutions, like there's no there's no mechanism whereby the left is cheating here, as far as I can see. Part of the reason conservatives don't dominate institutions is because they haven't made a good pitch. They haven't sold something people want to buy in those institutions. They haven't put together a package that is both ideologically conservative and gets people where they want and need to go. Um, you know, libertarianism is subject to this same critique. Why isn't everyone a libertarian? I ask myself every morning in the shower crying. Why is everyone so wrong? <laughs> why is everyone so wrong? But, but I don't, you know, I think that often when, when one is losing a game, one looks for the ways in which the game is rigged. And I, it is not clear to me that the current, lefty domination of our liberal institutions is evidence that the game is rigged. I think it's evidence that like they put together a winning package right now, um, but they won't have it forever. Yeah, and no, I, I, like, this I, will change. I agree. They won't have it forever. I know you got to go, but like just two quick points. One, I don't, I'm not saying the system's rigged in some sinister way. I'm saying that this, 
that these liberal institutions are pretty illiberal. And that's one of the oh, ways they get no to hang there. 100%. Right. They get to hang on to They don't like power. that word. I mean, I think we talked about this the last time I was on, but like not only are liberal institutions pretty illiberal, but conservative institutions are also pretty illiberal and it's all bad news. It's for all sure, bad news. For sure. But then the only other place I, I, I just, I, I, I don't want to disagree with you after you leave the podcast and then you'd be like, oh, you got in your shot after you left. Um, <laughs> I'm always uh, happy to let you have the last word. All I'm going to say is, is that I, I disagree with you about there being an elite consensus in this respect. The only thing that there's an elite consensus about that I can tell is that each set of, there are basically two broad elites and each thinks that they are the only legitimate sources of political authority, which is a really dangerous, stupid place to be. But this idea, when I hear Ted Cruz, I don't want to get all Mosca and Pareto on you, but like when I hear Ted Cruz, whose wife is a director of Goldman Sachs and who graduated from Harvard Law and was a solicitor general and is what, a second or third term senator, talking about how he's the enemy of the elites. Like, yeah. What are you friggin' talking about? It's like he might, he's just like a member of the Julii rather than a member of, you know, the, uh, you know, of the Cato branch of the Republic. I mean, it's like the, we have elites who weaponize the idea that their enemies are elites and they aren't. Elizabeth Warren does it too. And, um, but there is a fundamental asymmetry between the institutions that one set of elites hold versus the other. And I'd rather both had inroads at all of these institutions and we had a much more yeasty ecosystem than what we have right now. I deeply, deeply resent your use of the word yeasty. And with that... <laughs> I think if there's, we, can, we can all agree that that is the wrong choice for America. <laughs> there's certain words that just like moist and probe... There's certain words that you just that that I keep forgetting. I just feel like You're not Ted supposed to use. Cruz and yeasty that close together. It's like I don't like it. Fair, fair. All right, Catherine Mangaward, thank you so much for doing this. I know I promised rank punditry, but this was more fun. We did nothing. We did like two minutes of the student loan. We checked the box. That. We checked the did box. We? Yeah. Okay. So that's that's uh, I, I I did not lie to my listeners. I just misled them. Uh, I got great, great like follow-up email and tweets from your listeners the last time I was on. So I'm I have high expectations this time around. If you made it all the way to the end of this pod, you know, hit me up to complain about how I'm ruining America. I bet a bunch of people listened all the way through. And I will tell you, I will tell our listeners this. Catherine can uh she can handle criticisms from all angles and she is up to the task. So just be nice to her. She's one of my favorite people. But feel free to send her critical email. With that, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Jonah. All right, so Catherine Mangu Ward has left the studio. I hope it comes through uh, to listeners how much I like talking to Catherine and that everything's in good fun. We, of course, have significant disagreements, but this is one. I was, this is something I was just talking to her about after we stopped recording. We've been doing these conversations on, you know, like for so long. These these kinds of conversations these intramural right versus libertarian right versus right kind of conversations for so long that um, the part of the problem is that you can get stuck not talking in code, but sort of since we both know where we're going with the conversation, we end up using shorthand um, that people are like, well, what is that in reference to? And I was telling her like, uh, I feel, I feel like in six months and frankly in six hours, I'll be like, what was that conversation actually about? Because it is such a, it was at such an abstract level in part because we knew, you know, we knew where each other could go in these various things that it ends up being kind of weird. Anyway, I hope people enjoyed it. 
it made me very nostalgic for the 1990s where, you know, libertarian versus conservative arguments were um, all over the place and, um, and in good faith and a lot of fun. And now they seem kind of antiquated in terms of where the, the debates are on the right these days. But that's a subject for another day. Thanks again for everyone tolerating, including um, Caleb and Guy with my, uh, my weird uh, summer schedule in August. And um, I'm glad to be back. And we got a bunch of shows booked coming up that are going to be a lot of fun. And um, one, one, one might even dare say that they will be intellectually yeasty. Um, I look forward to uh, uh, talking to you next time. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.